the Good Christophian Talks podcast. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. Thank you so much for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help each one of us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post at the start of each week for you to listen with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to hear. And now, let's hear more about this week's talk. This week's talk is called Solving Ecclesial Problems by Brother Jim Stiles, who's from California, uh, originally from Michigan, uh, and he's speaking at the Bustleton Bible School in Western Australia in 2011. Brother Jim details the principles that we need to solve the complicated ecclesial problems that, uh, that come up. He mostly focuses on humility and effective communication, uh, basically speaking to each other directly. Uh, it's a really encouraging and practical talk. I found it very useful, a lot of good reminders. ChristophianBibleTalks.com has the PowerPoint, which I would definitely suggest if you want to learn more. He kind of refers to it a couple times in the talk. I think the talk holds up just fine without it. Um, but, the, but there's also more examples in the PowerPoint than what Brother Jim includes uh, in his talk at the Bustleton Bible School. So yeah, head to ChristophianBibleTalks.com and search for Jim Styles or Solving Ecclesial Problems and you'll find it there. We also wanted to take this time to suggest two other podcasts. Um, maybe by now you've gotten accustomed to listening to pods. One is the Essential Bible Studies podcast. Uh, they have a Facebook page and as well as a website, www.essentialbiblestudies.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts by searching Essential Bible Studies. The podcast is about Bible study and what makes good Bible study, and we are really enjoying it. Also, uh, today is Monday, February 4th, and you won't be able to find it on Apple Podcasts just yet, but we are excited to finally have the Good Christadelphian Talks extended channel online in the coming days. So I gave you the timestamp, but if it's a week or two later, you should be fine if you want to find that. This podcast channel is kind of an accompaniment, 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 accompany, you know what I mean, to, uh, to our show. Uh, what, it'll, what it'll have is it'll have the whole series from talks where we've highlighted just a single talk. So for example, our first podcast episode one was from Brother Bob Lloyd on Philippians, and the extended show has all of the uh, portions of that talk on it. So we'll mention it again next week, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it before that. If you want to look up Good Christelphian Talks Extended, you can go into the rest of a series of a talk that you might particularly enjoy on, uh, on this show, the main show. So in the meantime, here is Jim Stiles on Solving Ecclesial Problems. Well, I hope you don't think I'm going to give you all the answers for solving your ecclesial problems. Uh, I might ask you for a few on mine. <laughs> uh, not that anybody has all the answers. And I will be the first one to admit to you that there have been ecclesial problems in my lifetime that I haven't been able to solve, nor other brethren and sisters in our area. Uh, so we've lived through some experience like I'm sure some of you have where there's a lot of divisiveness and unrest and uh, this seems like the solution was like outside of our grasp of bringing everybody into a united solution. But that being said, I don't think that means that therefore because we have a few failures once in a while and solving ecclesial problems that therefore we just throw our hands up and just say, well, we can't solve any of them. 
Instead, uh, in my lifetime, at least, I've been very thankful to look back and see that in many of the cases, God has blessed us with solutions. And we have come up with uh, solutions that people have been able to work through and use. And uh, hopefully that wisdom came from the Bible. That's uh, what we found. We, we start looking in the Bible for examples. I think when you go through ecclesial problems, that's what you do. And you're doing the readings for the next year. You start looking for, well, what did they do? How did they solve it? And sometimes it worked. And you can see good, positive examples of how they resolved the problem. Other times it didn't work. And you can see good things that we shouldn't do. And uh, you can learn from those things too, as you can see here in, in Joshua 22. So that's what we'll hopefully have a chance to look at right now. Some of the useful resources for this, myself, I really believe, is the daily readings. When you're reading the Bible over and over again, what can happen with the daily readings, and sometimes it's, they're not like the perfect solution for thing, but by reading through the whole Bible on a periodic basis all through the year, every time you, you start over in January and you start again, or you start over in June with the New Testament, or July, uh, what happens is you now have all the background of that last year of all the problems that you experienced, all the situations God threw you into, all, all the issues that you were dealing with. Now those are like in the forefront of your mind. And when you read the Bible then, and you do it again, now you have new information that you're setting alongside of the Bible. And it helps us then to constantly compare the current things that are going on in our life with Bible characters and look for solutions in the wisdom of God. So I really think the daily readings help on that. Prayer would be another big factor in trying to solve ecclesial problems. I really believe that's, that is a major part of it is we go to God in prayer and we talk to Him. And we ask for wisdom. We ask for Him to get involved. We, we beg for, for God and for Christ to send the angels and, uh, and help us in our ecclesial problems because we're looking for ways to unite His family and bring them all together. The Ecclesial Guide, uh, although you can look at it and say that it's definitely full of some you know, human things that are there, it's, it is exactly what it says. It is a guide. And it's good sometimes to have some kind of guidance to start with, have a basis for everybody to be able to compare. And if in the end we decide as a group that we don't want to necessarily follow exactly what the guide says, that, that's, that's a choice that the group can make if that helps them bring about a solution. But in my experience, we found that the Ecclesial Guide has been very useful in trying to solve ecclesial situations. Not so much from the perspective that we hammer people down and we say, well, the guide says, therefore we have to do this, but more from the perspective of looking at it as a guide. It was written to try to help us through problems. So we read it from that perspective. Here's some guidance. This is one thing we can go to to try to give us some guidance on how we might work our way through this problem. And we might veer off a little bit here and there from exactly what the guide says, but it, it is, it's got a lot of wisdom in it in uh, trying to resolve ecclesial issues. And certainly we have around us the wisdom of the elders that we can go to. Sometimes as young people, you forget about that until you run into trouble. And then all of a sudden you'll go to somebody and you'll say, well, what did you do to work this out? And how did you solve this? Did you ever have this problem? And it's amazing how often us old people, uh, we actually know a few things and we can share our experiences with you and help you through those problems. So I found that very useful To uh, That's one of the things I like to do at Bible schools and different gatherings that we would go to. You talk to some of the older folks and find out, well, what did you do when this arose? And how did you work your way through this problem? 
We used to do that a lot when we were raising children. You'd go to some of the older ones that have already been through it. And you say, well, how did you work through this? And what did you try? Not that you have to follow exactly what they said, but you can try it and see if it works. And if it works, great. Thank God for the fact that some people have some wisdom. And certainly we need buckets and buckets full of patience. Uh, and otherwise, it just isn't going to work. That is probably one of the keys to the whole thing in solving ecclesial problems. We've got to have some patience. You're not going to necessarily get a solution right now, today, that we just force on everybody and, and think that that solved the problem and now we go on to the next thing. It, it isn't like that. It's not like fixing a part on a car and your, your battery's dead. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, got to get the battery fixed. And so you go out and you buy a new battery, put the new battery in, and you're all set, right? The little red car drives away. And uh, that was simple, wasn't it? That's, uh, if only all the problems were like that. And some of them are a lot more complex, may involve more than one component, not just a battery, it's all this other stuff. And we have to find a solution that works for the whole car, not just a, a little minor problem of uh, having a battery fixed. So those are the kind of things we look for. Now, what really impressed me about ecclesial problems and family trouble is that I think as a younger person, I grew up always thinking like, my focus was on the resolution that I had to make sure I got to that point over there, and we got to get there really fast because that's the right place to be. And I've been impressed that when you, when you go back and look at Bible examples of this, and you look back <coughs> over the history of, of your own life, I think probably a lot of you can realize that God is really sometimes, he's, he's a lot more concerned about how we got to the solution than the actual solution. And that's, a, that's a key item in solving ecclesial problems. If, if we all had that focus, I think we'd be a little more patient, and a little more slow, and a little more tolerant, and we'd be always stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and trying to second guess, are we doing this the right way? Because what we want to do is, when we look at ecclesial problems and troubles that arise, God has thrown those at us so that he can test us to find out about our single-mindedness, as James would say. Do we really believe God is in this? Or do I just have to implement my solution and force it on everybody and make sure we all do the right thing? What I consider, at least, to be the right thing from my perspective. And uh, we'll just make sure we all do my way. Now, you look at cases of that when you start looking in the Bible, and you look at the fact that, well, remember the, the story with David, when he went up to, to Nabal, and, and David wanted to get food from Nabal after they'd taken care of the sheep and all of that. I mean, if God wanted to, he could have removed Nabal right away. He could have. I mean, when you look at what Nabal did and the way he responded to David, and he wasn't willing to help out at all with David's men, you know, David, in a sense, was, was justified in getting angry at him, disappointed that Nabal hadn't been willing to come through. Now, the angels that were working that situation, what they could have done is they just could have said, well, at that point, Nabal, you blew it. You had your chance. That's it. Killed him right then. But they didn't. They waited. They waited. Eventually, they did kill Nabal. But they waited for it all to play out to see how are we going to handle this. And they let David go through some circumstances where David was going to do some pretty nasty things. And he was going to put himself into a situation where he was going to handle it the way he had been treated by Saul. And this is our problem. And in our experiences, we go back in our life and we figure, well, people treated me like this. I'm going to treat them like that. And it took the, the counsel of a wise woman to turn him around. And he, um, you know, he thanked her for that, married her in the end, and realized that, wow, God, God had stopped him through the angelic visitation of that woman from making a huge mistake that day. 
Or you look in the case of Asa, when, uh, when Asa beat Asa, when, he, uh, when he went after Baasha. I mean, he, he would have helped Asa in that case. Uh, he would have helped him out. But this was the story when, remember how the, the million-man army had come up against Asa from the south, from the Ethiopia, and Asa had trusted in God, and he did the right thing. This was our good King Asa, as the Sunday school lessons call him. Uh, for all you Sunday school teachers. Uh, he started out as good King Asa. The problem was he didn't end up that way. So what Asa did is he trusted God in that case, single-mindedness, asked for God's help, defeated the Ethiopian army, fine. Then he gets involved with Baasha, the king of the north, a north in Israel, and realizes this is a family issue. This is different than the Ethiopians. This is like ecclesial trouble now. It was one thing when the trouble was outside. I can deal with that. But now when the trouble is in the ecclesia, now what do we do? And so he goes at it a whole different way. Instead of going to God and talking to God, he now goes up and makes this deal with the, with the Syrians up there and says, you come down and bother them. And if you bother them up in the north and you get Baasha all upset, then uh, he'll have to leave building these border towns down there and pushing his way into the southern part in Judah, which he was doing. He'll have to leave there and go out now and, and, and fight with you guys. And while he goes and does that, then I'll just destroy all the stuff he's doing down in the south. And it worked. The, the plan worked. But then the prophet comes to Asa and says, you blew it. That wasn't the right way to do it. Uh, you didn't trust in God in this case at all. And if you had, I would have not only let you defeat the northern army and push Baasha back, I would have given you the Syrians too. But because you didn't trust me and you weren't single-minded, you don't get that. And then remember what he did? The Asa got all upset at the messenger, at the prophet, and beat him up and put him in prison, and then he beat up a bunch of people at that time, and then he got disease in his foot, and you never hear a good thing about Asa for the rest of his life. It's sad, but that's the, that's what, the way Asa ends up. And he could, God could have, in, the, in this case here, he could have wiped out Jericho on the first day. So you look at how patient God is. He waits seven days, seven days for people to go through this, because he's looking to see how are we going to respond. Now, you ever thought about that when ecclesial problems come up? If, if all the brethren and sisters, when a problem arises in an ecclesia, if our first thought could be, what is God trying to teach me? And how should I handle this so that it gets handled the right way? Because what God's really doing is he's not so much bringing up this problem to make sure that I hammer it all out and we get to that right point over there and we stand up for the truth and whatever, we, we do this kind of, what, as we tend to see it, we're so simple-minded that way. We want to go right to the solution. But instead, the trouble has come up because the angels know, I need to work through this. I need to go through this process and make sure that I handle it right with all the people involved because this is the training ground for the kingdom. This is really what that's all about. And if we all approach those problems that way, I think we'd have a little gentler and kinder spirit when we came at each other and we're dealing with some of our family and ecclesial problems. Because God could, he could jump right to that solution right now, right at this moment. He could solve the problem if he wanted to. He could by just removing people, by giving us sicknesses, by taking away things. He could just resolve that problem so fast. But the goal isn't just to resolve the problem. The goal is to do it in such a way that we are single-minded about God's involvement, believing he's in it, and we make sure we treat people with kindness and mercy and patience and that we reflect the character of God. So that's the key to the whole thing is believing God's in control. This isn't my problem. This isn't our problem. This is something God has given us in order for us to learn something about his character. 
and give us an opportunity to express that character. So they give us uh, these problems, they give us an opportunity then to uh, end up practice living by faith. Now, once you go through all of that, then it becomes very clear that the ends doesn't justify the means. There's no way you can really believe that if you're single-minded and understand that this is all about how I respond to this. It's not about getting to that solution over there. We've got to get there because that's the right answer. And therefore, I'll do whatever it takes to get there. But that's no good. The ends is never going to justify the means. Because what may be more important is the means than the ends. God may care more about how we handled it than the fact that we got to the right solution in the end. Because if we get there the wrong way, as, as, as Asa did with Baasha, that's no good. It's not about beating the other guy or doing those. It's how did we go about it that God cares about so much. So what we did is going through, again, when you're going through in the readings, you start looking at cases in the Bible of where did they run into ecclesial problems and how did they resolve those problems. So there's just some of them on the list that I'd like to look at because a lot of these are helpful for some of the things that we run into. So let's just pick up, first of all, the one about the, the tribes that we just read about in Joshua 22. I've always liked this one because to me this is like this is standard Christadelphian problem. This is like uh, you got, you know, you can see how everybody gets up on their, yeah, we're going to stand up for the truth. There's no way you're going to do this. And a lot of times in ecclesial troubles, and many times what happens is we don't know the other people, we don't know the other side very well, and we make a lot of assumptions about why they did things. And this, this all comes out in this case right here. And those assumptions we get all angry about. Oh, how could they do that? And the, the gut reaction of the flesh is, let's get them. We're going you know, to wipe these out, these people out. And th these stories are here because they help us understand this is the way people want to react. Now, this community in Joshua 22, what really is interesting to me is think about the background of Joshua 22. What had these people just done? in Joshua 22. They had just left Egypt, wandered for 40 years, come up from the eastern side, from the side over here of the Jordan, defeated Og and Bashan. Two and a half of the tribes had been given that land over there, but they said, even because of that, we'll still come over and help you. And they had all worked together for seven years. They had been in unity, fighting the battles of God together, taking over the land. They, they, had, they had done a tremendous job of working together. And now, when they go to separate and go home, right, now they're starting to wonder about, well, what's going to happen after this? This is sad. After seven years of being together and working together and fighting the battles of the Lord together and watching the miracles that had happened as they won those wars, they now go and go to split up and realize, oh, when we go to split up, I'm not really sure what you're going to do in the future. And the other side's like, I'm not really sure why you're doing this right now. And there's a lot of second guessing. And this is sad after all this time they had spent together. You, you would have thought by now they would have known each other really well and trusted each other. And really, they don't. There's a lot of mistrust here amongst the tribes. And it just shows this is, this is what life is like in life. Uh, in life. It's, uh, it's, these are people. They're human problems that you get. So the problem is then that the eastern tribes, the way they decided to solve the problem is on the way home, when they're going back up here to the north and they're going to go across the Jordan here and they're ready to go home, they decided, well, you know what we really should do? Down the line, it just may be that those guys on the, the western side, you guys over on the west side over there, maybe not you, but what about your kids? 
we know what happens. Generations go by, and your kids will have, have kids, and their kids will have kids. What if your kids, a couple generations down the line over here, what if you guys end up, your kids at least, end up not really believing that us over here, we're part of the land anymore? What if they want to just like separate us out? And we start worrying about the future like that. And so they decided they'd build this huge altar up there, build this monster altar. It really wasn't really an altar that you would use to offer sacrifices. It was a big, gigantic monument. He even calls it the big, giant altar that's over there. So they built the giant altar on the western side of the Jordan uh, with the intent, their, their intent is, that we're afraid that your kids and their kids or whatever will eventually not let our kids come across and worship, worship Yahweh anymore. That's what they were afraid of. And so look at the reaction in this case of what ends up happening. The folks on the western side, everybody over here, when they hear about this altar, imagine how the grapevine would have worked in those days. No text messaging and you know, no Twitter stuff and all that. But instead, you know, the, the line comes down. Did you hear what they did? you hear what's going on up there? Did you hear what they did? You know, and you can imagine how everybody put their little spin on it about what they're doing. And their little spin was very negative. This is typical of ecclesial life. People put spins on things, and when we put the spin with the negative intent, well, like James says, you know, you're doing this because you're really not humble, and we're stirring up strife in the ecclesia. It's really not good. Brethren, those things should not be so, but they are. You, know, you can see this back here. So they put the spin on it that those guys are building an altar up there, and they're doing it. They're going to have their own altar. And then, you know what happened before. What were the two things that they used? What were the two Bible cases? They went back, they got out their Bibles, and they said, oh, we can't do this. What were the two Bible history cases they brought up? What were they? Your turn. <laughs> what were the two cases? Achan, there's one of them. All right, isn't that a good one? That's a good one. Remember what Achan did? You remember what Achan did? Yeah, one guy and his family, they hid that stuff in the tent, and all of us had to suffer for that. Now, was that true? Yeah. So they got their Bible stories. Here we go. We got our Bible evidence for why, we can't get a, why you can't do this. What was the other one? Yeah, so what would that have been? They, they refer to it that way because they assume everybody knows what that is. What is that, that stuff at PR? What happened there? What happened? That was where Balaam, remember? Remember that story with Balaam and all the trouble he caused? Because he knew he couldn't curse Israel. So what he did instead is he, he just told, he told Balaam, he said, look, I can't curse Israel, but you know what? Just, just go get your girls and bring them up here and, you know, and get their own God mad at them. And when their God's mad at them, he'll destroy them instead. So what a plan, you know? And then remember what happened where the, the man and the woman were in the tent and Phineas comes in. Same Phineas that's involved here. So, you know, Phineas knew this story really well and put the spear through them and killed them both. So they've got their Bible stories ready to go. I mean, this is what happens in ecclesial life. We get out the Bibles and here we go. Here's the Bible evidence for why we can't do that. So that's the reaction of the people. And it's very easy to react that way in ecclesial life. You hear the stories, you hear the spin that somebody's put on it, and we assume that we've got the right spin. What was the problem? They didn't. They didn't have the right spin on the events. I don't know what you call it over here. We call that putting a spin on it when you sort of like put your own interpretation on what somebody else is doing. They didn't have it right. They didn't have their motives right at all. They had made huge assumptions about the motives of these people. Now look at the solution that the wise heads came to in this story. 
And this is, this is good. This is a good example of what happens in ecclesial life when you have spins like this take place and people start rumors and they want to get everybody all fired up. The tendency was the natural reaction of these people that had just worked together for seven years with each other is let's grab our weapons and go kill them. That's sad, brothers and sisters. That's the way we think about each other. And we're no different. Our community has done the same kind of thing. We don't pick up a gun and shoot the other person. No, we just disfellowship them and we kick them out. Or we just, I don't want anything to do with you people anymore. And we just write people off. But like James would say, it's just like committing murder and adultery. It's, we're, we're acting like the world. And instead, what happened in this case, instead of doing that, the wise heads prevailed. And instead, what they did as the solution is they got leaders who could talk and they decided to discuss the problem. So they get Phineas, there's high priest, and they get a representative of each of the tribes, so that like we would do today, where you get ecclesial representatives. And they go up there, and they talk to these people. What a great solution. Like, how could you ever think of that? Let's go talk to them and ask them, why did you do this? <laughs> it seems like such a simple solution to go talk to people, but it's so much easier to get out the guns and shoot them. I don't know why we're like that. We, we just, we want to get out the guns. I know you watch sometimes the kids out there with their sticks already. We got the sticks, we're ready to go, you know, do, do all the practicing. And, you know, we seem to like that kind of stuff in life. But later on, it's fun now, but later on in ecclesial life, we don't want to get out the guns and sticks and shoot our brothers and sisters. You just go talk to people. And we ask them, like, well, why did you do that? And imagine how they would have been so surprised to find out, you did it for that reason? That's what you were thinking? You were afraid that we would like not let you come over here and worship? That's what you actually were afraid of? Man, we had it all wrong. And I know this is what humility does though. They they had to admit we had it wrong. We were wrong about you. And so they, they ended up accepting the fact that, all right, we'll let that altar sit up there, and that's okay. We can have that as a memorial, and we'll, we'll all use it for the same reason now. We'll use it to try to remind everybody and our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids that we're all in this together, and the whole community can come over here and worship on the other side. And, you know, we read that story through and you just think that's such a simple solution. But to get our brothers and sisters today sometimes in ecclesial life to just sit and talk and find out why did you do something, that's not easy to do. And uh, what, what people like to do instead is just create rules and put up walls and separate and, and not at all look at the whys. And uh, it's such a simple thing to just discuss that. So I would have said that's a great example of an ecclesial problem that occurs ongoing all kinds of time in, in generation after generation. And you can see exactly what happened. Fears came into both sides. Both sides are afraid. They're afraid of what might come. They're both afraid. One side's afraid that you won't let me worship God. The other side's afraid that you're going to take us away from God because they really didn't talk it out when they both wanted the same thing. All they had to do was discuss it and find out, really, we're on the same page. We just didn't realize that that's how you were going to get there. Now, there's another one like that. We might just go to, just to, uh, to look at another one like that. And this one's in Leviticus 10. I don't know whether you've ever looked at Leviticus 10, but I find it, it's a very similar situation, only it isn't so much uh, a whole ecclesial problem as much as it is more like a family problem. So it's, it's the same issue, though, where whether you're dealing with big groups or small groups, you can have these, these areas where we don't talk, we don't know why something is happening, and our gut reaction is that, how could you do that? 
And until we go talk to somebody, we really don't know why. Because my understanding of why you did that isn't necessarily why you really did that. And I, 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 guess, I guess the bottom line is that we have to realize about ourselves when it comes down to it. And you've been through enough of these experiences over and over again. As, as younger people, I remember thinking I knew why the other person was doing it. I, I figured for sure I knew why. Because in my limited thinking, I was sure, well, you'd be doing it for the same reason I would be doing it. And I know why I would be doing it for this reason. Therefore, you must be doing it for that reason. And it turned out that isn't really true that there were a lot more things out there as possibilities than I had ever imagined. So Leviticus 10, what happens? This is where Nadab and Abihu get struck dead. Now, remember what had occurred is that you'd just gone through this period in Leviticus 8 and 9 where Moses had taken Aaron and his sons and he had separated them off away from the community in their own little area and he was consecrating them to become the high priests, the priests of, of the nation. So it was Aaron and his four sons, Eleazar and Ithamar and Nadab and Abihu. So there's only five priests for the whole nation right now. So he takes them, separates them, and Moses goes through the procedure of a week-long procedure of consecrating them to be the priests. And then on the first day, the first day that they are supposed to be operating as priests for the nation, the very first day, two of them come out probably drunk from what they were doing, and drinking too much uh, alcohol, and they, they just, God looks at them and realizes, forget it, you're offering strange fire, you're not following what you're supposed to do, you don't take this seriously, and fire comes out from God and strikes two of them dead. And now we're down to three priests. <laughs> All we got left is Eliezer, Ithamar, and Aaron, they're dead. But what had happened on that day is the very first day was a day in which they were supposed to ritualistically bear the sin of the people. So the way they would do that is they would offer a goat for the people and they would offer one for themselves, you know, first for yourself, then for the people. And so there was a goat, a sin offering for the nation. Now, the rule was very clear. If the, if the most holy place is over there and Aaron is offering a goat for the people, and here's the way that this worked. It was the law of the sin offering. When you kill the goat and you took the blood from the goat, if the high priest was going to take the blood from the goat, from the goat of the sin offering, and he was going to actually go into the most holy place with that, with that blood, he only did that once a year. But if he goes into the most holy place, what was the rule about the animal? What was the rule? Rule? Rule for the priest. If you take the blood into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, what was the rule about the goat? The priests, what? They couldn't eat it. They couldn't eat it. That was the rule. I don't know what you caught on. It's in Hebrews 13, too, where Paul uses this. And he talks about we have an altar that which we can eat, of which the priests that were under the law have no right to eat. So God set this up in the law, and he had a good reason. And what he was saying, we'll look at that for a second. But let's get the rule straight. The rule of the, of the goat of the sin offering, it's back in Leviticus it's 6 or 7 in there, but he actually has the rule there which states it. And, it's, and here's the rule was, that if you're the priest... And you're going to take the blood on the Day of Atonement, you're going to take the blood into the most holy place, into eternity, then on that day, you cannot bear the sin of the people. Because what God wanted to make it very clear in the law is that the Jews who read and understood the law would never think the law could save them. Your priest under the law will never be able to take you into immortality in the presence of God and also bear your sins on the same day. Can't do that in the law. There was going to be somebody beyond the law that would do that. 
So this was not a day of atonement, though. This, this day right now in Leviticus 10, this is not the day of atonement. So if it's not the day of atonement, and the blood is not going to go into the most holy place, then what were the priests supposed to do with the goat of the sin offering? Then they were supposed to eat it. All right? And when they ate the goat of the sin offering, they were ritualistically bearing the sin of the people, representing what Christ would do. So one day you can represent Christ's work this way, and on one special day of the year you can represent Christ's work that way, but you as high priest under the law can never do both. It's sort of like the same idea of separating king and priest out. God put all these things in the law to if, so that if a person carefully read it, they would never think their law could save them. It was only designed as a tutor to teach them about the work that Christ would do. So what happens? They get the goat going. They get the goat cut open. Right? It's not the day in which you're supposed to go into the most holy place. So some of the goat would be burned on the altar. But a lot of the goat, the parts of the goat, were supposed to be eaten ritualistically by the priest. And so Aaron and, and his sons were supposed to eat the goat and ritualistically bear the sin of the people on the first day that they're operating as high priest for the nation. And God sends out fire kills two of Aaron's sons. Now we're down to three. We got Aaron and his two sons. There's only two sons left. And Aaron's devastated. And so what happens in verse 18, look, look at uh, verse 16. Just skip down to verse 16 and you can see the problem. So after Eliezer and, uh, or after um, Nadab and Abihu are struck dead, all right, he looks around and Moses diligently made inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. And there it was. You can see Moses going around. Where's the goat? Where's the goat, Aaron? Where's the goat? Who's got the goat of the sin offering? We're supposed to eat the goat. That's the rule. The, the, the blood didn't go into the most holy place. Where's the goat of the sin offering? You're going to bear the sin of the people today. And he's looking around like, where's the goat? Where's the goat? And he's trying to figure out where it is. And he finds out, oh no, there it is on the altar. You burned it. And he's all upset because now we have an ecclesial problem. It's more like a family problem. Somebody didn't follow the rules. So he, he realizes, he gets angry at the end of verse 16 there. He was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation and to make atonement for them before the Lord? This is how this law works. Don't you get it? He's already trained them. He's tried to educate them in how to be priests for this nation. And Moses is getting all upset about the fact you didn't follow the rules. And he's right. They didn't follow the rules. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. Now that rule is back in chapter 6 at verse 30, if you ever want to look it up. It's also in chapter 8. I think the, the key one is in chapter 8 at verse 15, if you're uh, making any notes there and you want to go back and check it out. But that was the rule, is that if the blood doesn't go into the, into the tabernacle and it doesn't get sprinkled on the mercy seat, then the high priest was to ritualistically bear the sin of the people as I have commanded. So there's the problem. And Moses gets all upset. But look at how it's resolved. Aaron comes forward. And Aaron says to Moses, he doesn't come in and just say, he doesn't come in on his high horse and try to solve this problem. He comes in in humility and he says, look it, Moses, this day they've offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And such things have befallen me. He's talking about the death of his two sons. My own two sons. I, we couldn't even raise them in such a way that they followed this procedure on very one first day. They couldn't do it properly and God has struck them dead. If I had eaten the sin offering today, 
what it had been accepted in the sight of the Lord. That, that was a good response. And so what Aaron had decided, he had like humbled himself to the point where he realized, I couldn't even get my two boys to, to do this properly. We couldn't work this out on the very first day. Burn the goat. Burn it. There's no way we're going to ritualistically bear the sin of this people today. There's no way that God's going to accept my family today and, and, me, and my family as priests when he's already struck ton of, two of them dead. And so when Moses heard that, he was content. And he realized that, wow, that's a good spirit. I understand what you did. So although he got angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, he's probably angry at Aaron as well, when Aaron finally talked to him and they talked the issue out and he realized why Aaron had done this, then, wow, you know, that, I hadn't thought of that. That was, that was new information of a perspective that Moses didn't have. Because Moses' focus was so much on following the rules. Let's do the rules. I know what the rules are. We've got to do the rules right. And he, he hadn't really thought about the, the emotional impact of all of what had happened on these people. And this is what can happen very easily in ecclesial life because we have rule people and then we have folks who are the feelings people. And it's good when you can talk it out and try to figure out why somebody's doing what they're doing. Don't just assume they're doing it because of why I would have done it, but they might have had a different component. And in this case, Aaron was just so emotionally distraught in this case of losing his two sons, he, he realized there's no way God was going to accept them today. So I, I think that's, that's a nice practical one there when you look at that solution there. I don't know whether you've ever seen that before, but it's very similar to the one with the, uh, with the folks in uh, with, with the uh, Joshua 22 case, only this is more on just three people. We've got or even two. We've got Moses and Aaron involved. But it shows the same spirit where you're willing to talk to people and solve the problem by talking to them instead of just uh, wiping them out and so on. Now, I don't know if you've got the other ones there. I've, I've always thought that the, uh, the Jerusalem Conference one, I've been impressed at that one in Acts 15. So I, just, I put them all up there. If you get the PowerPoints, you can look at them all. We won't have time to look at them all today. But the, the, the one in Acts 15, I think this one's good because this one fits ecclesial life today. When you start looking at, well, how do we solve problems in the ecclesia when problems arise? So Acts 15, everybody knows this is a good Sunday school lesson. Where we've got the Gentiles coming in. So now we have new cultural groups coming into the truth that don't worship God the way we're used to worshiping God. They don't dress the same, they don't eat the same food, they don't sing the same way, they don't talk the same way, they may not even use the same names. You know, they, they don't even have the same name for God that we have. You know, we have Yahweh our God and they, they refer to him probably differently. So you have all these, these groups that are coming together and the feeling amongst the Jews was that these guys that you're bringing in right now, they're, they're like a bunch of barbarians, Paul. They're, just, they're wild people compared to what we're used to with our nice you know, system of law and how we worshiped our God. You, you have all these wild people coming into the community. They don't look like, they don't fit the way that we're used to. And so there was this huge dilemma developing as Paul went and took the gospel out to the Gentiles because now you've got Gentiles and Jews coming together and you're trying to figure out what do we do? How do we merge these groups so that we can still attain to God's standards so we hold the critical standards of God, but we don't make people follow all the customs and stuff that I'm used to that make me feel good. How do we do this in such a way that we can bring these groups together? 
So I think the solution that they came to was good in Acts 15. They got the ecclesial representatives together, which is what we would do today. They got reps coming from all the different ecclesias, and they brought them into Jerusalem. This was how they were going to try to resolve this. So that's what you see in Acts 15, that they, uh, it all developed as a result of verse 1, that certain men had come down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when that happened, they realized we have got to resolve this. Because now you're asking Gentiles to do things that Paul would know we cannot require of the Gentiles. We can't put up with this idea anymore that you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, if you want to get circumcised, and you want to circumcise your kids, and you want to be circumcised, that's fine. You go ahead and be circumcised. But you can't impose that on everybody in the community. So that's what they did. They got together and a bunch of people showed up in, in uh, verse 2 there. They got uh, Paul and Barnabas to go down and certain others of them to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they gathered together and they, they brought all these people together. And there were some in verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So you not only had believers that were Jews that were in this community, you also had some of the extreme sects of the Pharisees in the community at this point that had come in, and you could see why they were causing problems in the community. They were still trying to hang on to their way of worshiping God, their ritualistic system of keeping the law, and circumcision was the big example. And so they would try to, uh, to force people to be circumcised. So what, what is the solution? Well, they get together, and what do they do? Right, so the solution is you hold the big conference and in verse 7, Peter gets up and talks to them. And Peter recounts to them how God was choosing the Gentiles and that Peter was told you don't make a distinction anymore between the Jew and the Gentile and that the Holy Spirit has indicated this. So Peter tries to bring his piece of the solution in here of what he had known, that God made no distinction. You can't have this prejudice anymore about these Gentiles because the solution is in verse 9, they're purified their hearts by faith. So why do you test God putting a yoke on these people that we and our fathers, we really couldn't live this thing anyways? Why would you want to put this on them? And, so, and then you've got uh, not only Peter, but you've got Paul. All the multitude kept silent in verse 12. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how miracles and wonders God had worked through them amongst the Gentiles. So their solution was to have different people give their, their ideas. They brought the group together and they gave their, their, their testimony about how God had worked through them. And, and I think what they did is they tried to clearly make it a case of where this isn't just Peter saying, here's what I think. And Paul doesn't just come in and say, here's what I think. They both came in and said, look at what God has done through the Spirit. Look at what he has chosen. How can we resist this? And then James gets up in verse 13 because James had the respect of everybody and James puts it all together and good old James, he doesn't just go based on past experience and, and all that because he knows these Jews. They're not going to be happy with just trusting Paul and trusting Peter. James says, the Bible says. So James has got his Bible out. He's going to have his Bible passage ready to go. So James quotes from the prophets in verses 15, 16, 17 about rebuilding the tabernacle of David and says, look it, if the prediction was all along that the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt in the kingdom age and that Gentiles will come in. God must have wanted the Gentiles. He wants them in the kingdom. Maybe it's starting now. And so uh, that's what they decided. And that's how they brought them all together. So what they did then, the solution was to write the letter. 
So they sent a letter out to all the ecclesias. Now, when they wrote this letter, when you, when you look at the, the, the solution that they came up with, the, does the solution involve the fact that, well, we don't want to upset the Jews and we don't want to upset the, the party of the Pharisees, so we better mandate circumcision? Is that how they solved it? No. So they were willing to draw a line on circumcision because they realized we can't require circumcision. If we do, then people are still going to think that we're being saved by this law. And this is a big issue. This is a monster issue that we have to make sure everybody is clear on. By works of law, no flesh will be justified. We're justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't put circumcision in the letter. We can't do that. Paul just, you know, he had already said in Galatians 2, he withstood Peter face to face. We are not going to require circumcision. This was Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. This was Paul's whole life in the truth. We're not going to go back to circumcision and works of law saving us. We can't do that. So we can't give them that peace. We can't do that. But what can we give them? Well, we can give them when they write the letter in verse 25, all right, because, uh, well, actually in verse 24, I think it's nice to notice that they realized that this had actually all started because of the grapevine. Rumors had come out. People were showing up saying, hey, down in Jerusalem, James thinks that you should all be circumcised. And so in the letter, they clarified the fact that in verse 24, since you have heard from, uh, from some that went out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So they first of all clarified an issue and said, wait a minute, we never said that. So you, you put, first of all, you straighten out the facts and you try to get the facts right. And then they said, all right, it seemed good to us in verse 25 with the others and with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they bring in the names. So you realize they're involved in this. They're on board with this too. That look at men who had risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to send these guys out. But here's the result. But we're not going to put on you in verse 28 any greater burden than necessary. So we're going to try to lower this to the minimum requirements. But here's what we need in order to bring unity. Can you just abstain from the things offered to idols? Now, is that something that they really had to do? Was that really a requirement that the, that the Gentiles not eat food offered to idols? Or did they now have the freedom to do that? What was it? What do you think? Yeah, they had the freedom to do that. They could have. So this was now a compromise. This is, this is interesting. This is examples of compromises in the truth. When people say to us sometimes, well, you should never compromise. That isn't true. They did compromise. They gave up a freedom that they should have been able to have. And, and they were asking the Gentiles to give up this freedom. So we're going to ask you guys, for our sake, to please make sure that you don't, off, you don't eat things offered to idols. Stay away from blood. Don't eat, the, don't eat the stuff that's strangled with blood. Because in the Jewish mind, this was so ingrained in them that this was evil and wrong. If they were doing this, they thought they were sinning. So... For our sake, then, will you please stay away from these things? Stay away from strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, that one was fine. All right, and you can imagine they threw that in there just to assure the Jews that these people that are coming in, they're not wild. They're not living immoral lives. All right, so you throw in some things that, are, that we need to have, and you throw in a few other things that, well, these are like little bonus items to make sure, can you please do this for us because it's so upsetting to the folks back there, and that you keep yourselves from these things, you'll do well. Farewell. And they sent the letter out. 
Now, I, I find that's a great example, brothers and sisters, of, of looking at the concept that, yeah, it's okay sometimes to do some compromising. It's okay to give in on some of those issues where we give up some of the freedoms that maybe we should have for the sake of the unity of the group. But what you don't do is you don't give in on critical first principle issues. And that's what happened here. They wouldn't give those Jews... Oh no, we're not going to give you circumcision because if you get circumcision, you're going to still think circumcision sort of represented all of that salvation by work system. And they held their line and said, we can't give you that. And Paul made that very clear. He would not give in on that. We are not going to go back to circumcision. But there are some other things that we can give in on. We can compromise on those. And that was really a good spirit to have where you're trying to bring unity in a group and solving ecclesial problems. We, we, this was what arranging brethren have to do or what parents have to do with their children. You have to look at the issues and weight them out and try to figure out which are the key ones and which are, are the ones that you can afford to give in on. And, and it's okay to make compromises at times. And you do that for a while. Now, there's no evidence, though, that this was, was continued on for hundreds of years or something like that. This was a momentary situation, solution to a problem they were experiencing right at that time. And so the solution was, can we all agree to make some compromises? We're not going to give in on the key issues. We're, not going, to, we're going to hold true to the fact that we're saved by grace, by, by faith in God, not by works. But we'll, we'll give you these other things because for years we realized you guys have you've all thought this was, was bad and this was wicked and it brings up all these things in your mind about your sinning. So we won't eat those things and uh, we'll do that for you. So that's a good solution, I think, really, when you look at uh, what they were willing to do right there. And it gives us some guidelines, at least, as to how we go about it. So that was their solution in the end. The things strangled and the things from blood and even uh, the things polluted by idols in terms of if it was just food or whatever, you could see where you, they didn't really have to give them those. But they wanted to make sure that you didn't think about these Gentiles as being barbarians. So uh, we'll give in on those issues and we'll make sure you realize we are legitimate believers. We really do want to be part of the community. And that was the way they solved that problem. Now, you, know, you, you could go on and look at a bunch more if, if, you, uh, if you pull off the PowerPoint at some point you want to look at them. Or what I think is really fun to do for yourself is just keep listening to your Bible as you're doing the readings. And you start and you're doing the readings at home. Just look for how people solve problems. What did they do? How did they resolve those problems? And if we understand what they did to resolve their problems, I think that will help us in resolving ours. Sometimes they had good solutions. Sometimes they didn't. And if we had time to look at the one with the, uh, with, with the, the, the tribe, remember in the case with the Levite and his concubine, you remember what happened with that one when they cut up the concubine and sent it out all over the community? He just riled everybody all up, got their emotions all going, their blood was boiled, let's kill them all. And they went after that tribe and they nearly wiped out a tribe in Israel because people got all emotionally generated. And that sometimes happens in our community. People, they want to get the emotions stirred. They try to present it in the worst possible case. So he takes his concubine, chops her up into pieces, and sends her up all over. All that does is get, get, get people's emotions all fired up. And they're not using their Bibles. They're not thinking anymore. They're not praying about it. They're just emotionally driven. We don't want to react like that. That's an example of what not to do in ecclesial life because they nearly wiped out the whole tribe of the Benjaminites in that case. And then they had to come up with their little schemes to try to figure out some way where they can legally come up with a way for those Benjaminites to find some wives, but we don't want to sin while we're doing it, so we just sort of won't notice what you're doing, and we'll give you the idea ahead of time and tell you how we'll set it up. Uh, that's the kind of goofy stuff that goes on in ecclesial life sometimes. 
That, that whole situation in the judges is crazy, but that would be an example of what you don't want to do. In that case, both sides messed up and they came up with terrible solutions. And uh, that's a warning, we don't want to be like that. So hopefully what we'll do then, brothers and sisters, in our future is that what, what we want to do in solving our problems is we want to aim at some of the positive things. Let's make a, an effort to communicate about our problems. I think that's, that's one that we can all do. You can learn that from these cases here. You communicate. Let's pray to God and ask for his help in finding solutions. I mean, this is what we want to do. We take the problem to God. We don't just think right away, I've got to work it out. I've got to solve it. I've got to get to that point right away or we're all sinners. Uh, you take it to God and, and, let, and, help and ask God to help us find a solution. And don't always assume the worst of everybody else. Talk to them. Our natural tendency, for some reason, is that if there's any kind of rivalry involved at all, we tend to assume the worst of each other. I'm not quite sure why that is, but that seems to be the human spirit sometimes with people that are like on the other side. If our, if our child does one thing, we think, oh, they must have a good reason. If somebody else's child does it, we think, oh, they must have a bad reason. And I don't, we're, we're like that. It's, it's terrible. At least we need to know that's how we are, and then we can help respond the right way. Make sure we pull out our Bibles and use them for guidance. That's why these stories are here, so that we can learn what to do and what not to do. And I think the old golden rule of if we just treat other people the way we would want to be treated, I mean, it goes a long way to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you find yourself into ecclesial troubles, put yourself on the other side for a minute and then look at it from their perspective and find out, well, what would you want done? What would you want those, that other side to do if you were over here? And it helps us respond in a much better way to those people, a way of helping them. And it is okay to compromise on non-essential issues. Don't let anybody ever tell you that all compromise is wrong. You can see that in Acts 15. That's not true. There are times where we can give in on the non-essentials. And be willing to extend God's mercy to others. I mean, you'll see that all over in Bible cases where they found good solutions. It usually involves in some way extending God's mercy to other people. And be careful that you don't overreact to other people's mistakes. And, and, you know, because what it can do is make worse mistakes ourselves. That's what happened with that story with the Benjaminites. They overreacted, got all emotionally charged up, and then they themselves made mistakes because they weren't really thinking with their heads on. They weren't thinking along the lines of the Bible at all. And make sure we're willing to listen to brothers and sisters who try to come up to, uh, with godly solutions. That's what we really want to do is ask each other, talk to each other, and see, well, what, what do you think we should do? And what would, what would you think that, that God would have us do in this situation? And hopefully we'll be uh, a lot better off. And another thing you can do is, is look at the concept, though, of accepting the decisions of the elders. Uh, that one actually, that actually came out of the, the idea of the Gibeonites. It would have been very easy for the community to get upset with the elders and override them on their decision about the, uh, the Gibeonites, but they didn't. They decided in the end, all right, we made a mistake, we blew it, we'll make the most of the situation. You want to make the covenant with the Gibeonites, we'll respect it, we'll follow through on it. And they did, they accepted that. And uh, I think that's the, probably the right way to do it. I put that in there about unless it would destroy one of God's flock, because if you ever go back and look at the list, uh, Saul and Jonathan, uh, that's a good example of where you don't want to necessarily do what the elders said. Remember that, that time that Saul made the oath and he swore that uh, anybody that eats anything today, you're going to die? And Jonathan comes along, doesn't know about the oath, eats the honey, God blesses him, and Saul's ready to just say, kill him. And all the people ransomed Jonathan from his dad in that case because they realized 
you're, you're off your rocker on this. There's no way we're going to kill this man. God just used him to, to work out a great salvation in the community. How in the world can you sit on your legalistic rule of your law that you made, Saul, and let this man die? And there are some times where it's possible, I guess, that elders could get that far off the track, and you might have to intervene, but you know, hopefully that's a rare case when you have somebody like a Saul. So uh, we didn't get very far, but maybe that will help you at least on looking at solving some ecclesial issues. I think the main thing is to approach it slowly, calmly, with prayer, talking to people. Don't get all riled up on the emotions. And let's look for a solution that involves a, a, way of, a pathway where we don't sin along the pathway just to get to the end result. And hopefully uh, we'll have a lot more peaceful solutions that way. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. Please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcasts, whichever service you use to help people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this talk, share it on social media so other people can hear it too. For show notes and links to the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct. We encourage everyone to share their thoughts on the talk from this week with everyone on Facebook or Instagram, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, or on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast. If you know a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on social media. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.